Welcome to the Sanity Pod, honest human stories from the front lines of startup life. Our mission is to normalize the ups and downs of creating something from nothing and the challenges common to every leader, such that we might all feel a little less alone in the journey. In our first season, we are focusing on stories and tactical advice from leaders guiding organizations through the coronavirus crisis. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. How was your rest of your time in Wisconsin? It was good. I mean, not much has really changed. Still just staying inside and working out. No no life other than work and working out. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's good to, uh, it's good in some ways. It's bad in other ways, you know? Yeah. Today, we welcome Trevor Owens, the author of the best-selling book on applying lean methods in large organizations, titled The Lean Enterprise. Trevor is an expert in lean startup methodology. Trevor's work has been featured in national outlets, including Forbes, Bloomberg, Fast Company, Business Insider, Mashable, and others. He's been a featured guest speaker at Princeton, Columbia, the U.S. White House, and worked with companies around the world, including General Electric, Amazon, Microsoft, Huawei, United States Postal Service, and many others. Trevor was previously the founder and CEO of Lean Startup Machine and Javelin and is currently working on a new product, which he talks about in the episode. We explore lean, but also major life and leadership topics, including burnout, grief, loss, layoffs, running out of money, the pressure to lead well, and the art of starting over. You're going to love Trevor. Now, on to Trevor. Thanks for making time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. I've been excited about this. My pleasure. Excited to be here too. Would you be up for starting by just for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you giving a, a little bit of an introduction on yourself? Sure. So my name is Trevor Owens and I am entrepreneur, also an author. I started a company in 2010 called Lean Startup Machine. Um, I'm probably most known for where we created the first training on lean startup methodologies. We're advised by Eric Reese in creating the program, and you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of great support from a lot of the ex- early experts and evangelists in the lean startup movement, and um, hosted workshops all around the world. The last count was over 150 cities we've hosted workshops in. Not personally myself. I mean, I've I've personally probably run a hundred or so more than a hundred workshops myself, and you know, traveled all around the world to every single continent except for Australia and Antarctica. Well, we have done a workshop in Australia, but I haven't gone there personally. I wanted to be in the software business because software is scalable. Scaling a training business is really tough. Uh, margins are very thin in a training business. That's the cause of a lot of my pain, I think, over the years uh, with Lean Startup Machine is that it was such a, something that people loved so much, but just the margins weren't very great and it was very hard to make profitable. And then we went to the software business. We raised VC. We ended up raising a total of $2 million across 2013, 2014. Ended up running out of money about 18 months later but kept working on it. We launched about five products, different products in the innovation and lean startup space, trying to create products that would help people to build better products, validate their business opportunities, both in the startup side and corporate innovation side. None of them quite took off. So, I mean, the most successful one was a product called Cook MVP that did at one point 250K annual recurring revenue, but the retention was about like three months for the average user. So you know, that's not a high enough retention rate to become a a really big business. I mean, it it could probably have been several million dollar business, but it would never have been a venture scale business. I think after we ran out of money, basically what I decided to do is I decided that 
you know, what did I want to do? And the, and what I always wanted to do is become technical because I found that a lot of the issues that I had with going from VC funded to being successful was just the cost of development. You know, some of the early products we built were over-engineered. And I think that we just didn't have, I personally didn't have the experience technically. I think that's what held me back. And so I wanted to become technical. And so I started learning to code sometime in 2015 and started getting into it, started to realize I was pretty good at it, was surprised. And then I just kept going at it and I ended up rebuilding Javelin two times. So the first time I rebuilt it and it was pretty good, but actually I went through some really difficult stuff. My best friend passed away, like right when I was getting ready to launch that product. So I kind of derailed it. And then this whole time we were surviving on bootstrapping, consulting, public speaking. I wrote the book, The Lean Enterprise in 2014, which is about applying lean startup in the enterprise. That was very helpful in giving us some revenue, you know, just to support ourselves and keep going. But then I ended up relaunching Javelin again in 2018. It was pretty decent. Um, you know, we got a lot of people using it, kept iterating on it, but it just tended to be like we bit off more than we could chew. And with the funding and resources that we had, I didn't think it was something that we could execute on to get to the level where it could really break through. And so then as of beginning of this year, I started working on something new again, which is called Rocketship. And Rocketship is a education platform for accelerators, innovation programs, and coaching programs as well. So we're targeting the broader online learning market, which is a re- actually a really huge market. And I think it's been interesting seeing the demand for this and seeing how it's been a lot easier to execute on than Javelin has been because it's a much bigger market and there's many more use cases for what we're doing now. So I think that was a very long-winded intro. I hope that gave um, some some fodder for the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many threads there that I'm excited for us to pick up on in the conversation. So thank you for that. I'd be curious to start with, what do you know now or how do you see the world in your work now in a way that you wish you'd seen when you were just starting out? I think the biggest difference has been made from becoming technical because when I first started out in 2010, I actually started Lean Startup Machine. It wasn't intended to be a business. It was intended to be part of all the different activities I was doing in order to help find a technical co-founder for my business because I went to NYU Stern, uh, studied finance, and you know it's really hard to find a technical co-founder in New York City, especially at that time. I mean, hopefully it's changed, but you know you go into a room full of people who want to start startups, and like one out of fifty is technical or could be a technical co-founder, and so the odds are really hard. And and back then, I believe that that I didn't have what it takes to be a really good technical co-founder, or that it made more sense to find somebody who could do it for me. But I think at the end of the day, now what I realize is that it's a lot easier than I expected. And being able to do that, you can still have a technical co-founder if you're technical. In fact, someone who is technical will be much more willing to join your company if you are also technical. So just the amount of money that you can save from being technical, I think is is significantly underestimated by most of the founders that I talk to who are just starting out and they're not technical. They just don't realize how many millions of dollars it takes to actually build a product. Like to get to V1, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands or $100,000 if it's like a very simple product or $50,000 if like you get a deal and it's really simple product. But you're building enterprise software we like we were, you're building an online learning platform you stand to save millions of dollars by being able to build it yourself. And so 
and the hurdle to do it is a lot less hard than I expected. So I look back at like the 2010 me and if I had just started learning in 2010 so 2015, I think I'd be in a completely different position. So that's like one of many things I think that I've learned that reflecting on it now, I wish I knew 10 years ago. I think it's a really interesting learning. I know for me, when I was just starting out as a founder, there were these areas that were very black box that just felt like I would never be able to wrap my arms around them. And the technical side was certainly a big one, which is kind of ironic, both for myself, and I see this with a lot of founders that are running early stage tech companies, is you're running a tech company, but you actually have no real concept of how the tech in the company actually works. How did you even begin to dive into that? And I found this really inspiring last year when we were catching up and you were sharing some of the story with me uh, about how you found the the early breaking through to an understanding uh, and the ability to do some early building that you found that coming much more quickly than you anticipated. Could you share more about that? Yeah. So basically it was like when, when we were winding down the company, when we were running out of money, this is another thing I learned. It's like when you run out of money, it doesn't happen like all at once. It's not like everything is going fine. And then the next day you're just like, all right, that's it. It's like, it's a slow and painful process of like this month, you let go of one person, the next month you let go of another person. And like, as soon as you start letting people go, you know, people are in high stress, people are not happy. And when you're running out of money, it's like, you know, six months at least of pain. You kind of, you know, the odds, like, I think I also probably naively believe that I could pull a rabbit out of a hat because I had done that so many times throughout my career is kind of like this pull a rabbit out of a hat the last moment. And I did do that. I mean, I got a, we originally raised 1.5 million and then I raised a bridge of 600 K, which was like kind of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. But, you know, deep down, maybe subconsciously, I thought I could keep doing that, but you, you really can't at some point. And so it was like, we had only two engineers left and then we had one engineer left. And then I was like, okay, like the writing's on the wall now. And what am I going to do? I'm not sure if I'm going to start another company. I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I definitely want to learn to code. And then that will open doors for me to start another company or, or do whatever. And, you know, I wasn't sure how good I was going to get. I was just like, I just want to give it a try because it's like, it's something I always wanted to do essentially. And, and I, that's, that guides, I guess, a lot of my decision-making is like, what, what would I regret if I didn't try to do? And so I started learning. I started watching videos online because our team was kind of winding down. I didn't have a lot of meetings during the day. And the product was already like, we had already seen the metrics of the product. We knew that like the retention wasn't high and that the momentum wasn't there. We didn't have the team anymore. So it was just kind of like the writings on the wall, biding our time. Okay, well, I have this open window. Our engineers are still fixing bugs. We still have customers. We still have customer support handling those customers. But if I put time into growing this, it's not going to be sustainable. So just kind of writing it out. So I have all this, all this time. I don't have meetings. I you know don't have a big team left. So I have this really big block of uninterrupted time. So perfect opportunity to start learning to code. The final engineer was going to be let go soon. But basically, I was also planning to take over the product to maintain it. So that was also a motivation. And so I just started learning just started picking it up. To my surprise, the learning curve was in many ways, like exponential in the sense that the 80-20 rule applies. Like I felt like the first uh, week you learn a lot. And I actually made a graph out of this. I forget, I forget the exact numbers, but it's like within a month, you know, 25%. And then within two months, you know, you are pretty much capable. And I felt that I felt that after two months of just doing it every day, that I could pretty much build not necessarily super well, but I could build almost anything I could think of 
I understood how the whole backend works, object-oriented programming, and you know, I found all these resources that just explained how to do everything. And so I was actually really that moment when I realized like, wow, this is way easier than I thought was kind of like pulling the curtain back and realizing that, you know, there's a man behind the curtain. It's not the Wizard of Oz. You know, there's no magic. I had spent all this time thinking that that this was something super complex that your 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 mind has to be trained or you have to be of a certain mind to learn it, but it it's in no way more complex than what I learned in in finance in undergrad. It's an incredible story. How does that experience serve you when you face other unknown challenges now or other domains that seem impenetrable? I would say that it I haven't really carried it over to anything else since in some ways, but has changed my approach to building startups because previously, you know, we hired really good talent for our engineering team and we hired them not in New York City, not in San Francisco. You know, you'd pay a lot more for the same people in New York or San Francisco. But these are still people who are very senior and we're paying them 120k per year plus full health care, health insurance coverage. And that's just super expensive. And a lot of engineers who are really skilled, you know, they really value their work-life balance. And to keep talented people like that, you have to respect that. And so I'm the type of person who I will work a hundred hours a week because because I want to, you know, not because I'm like forcing myself, but even though I'm less skilled than they were, I'd have to spend time like translating my idea into a format they can understand or try to get them to understand it. And then maybe they still did it wrong. It just would go straight from my head to the code. And then I would be working a lot more hours because I was enjoying it and I'm passionate about it and I want to see progress faster. So I haven't really applied it to something since. I've really since then been kind of just developing that skill and then realizing that one of the biggest benefits is not just that you can build the tech yourself and save a lot of money that way, but also you can hire people. I could hire people who are junior developers instead of 120K per year you know, they're making 60 to 80K per year. And then I can make them much more effective and I can communicate in a way and I can read their code and I can audit their code and we can do code review and I can make them much more effective and more valuable and the productivity can be much higher for a team of junior engineers. As you're talking about the last seven years, the idea of the hero's journey is coming up for me. And I'm just observing that in the hero's journey, there's this concept of the valley of death or difficulty. And it would seem that you faced times like that, maybe one, maybe many over the last seven years. I I wonder if you'd be up for identifying maybe a three or six month period that was particularly difficult. And if we could slow down the story and talk through that in a bit more detail. I know that I often have founders come to me just in the middle of that period. It's often when when people are reaching out and looking for assistance. And I wonder if we may unlock some some hope, some tactics, some learnings from you if we, if we go a little bit deeper on your own story. Is there a time that comes to mind for you? Man, I feel like I feel like I identify that time as being several years. I mean, basically from the time that we raise money and running out of money to you know, my best friend passed away really up until recently, maybe the last two years or less, I felt like I really was back on my game in a sense and kind of coming out of it. I still don't feel like I'm out of it yet, but it feels like a long time. I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your friend. I wasn't aware of that. What was his or her name? Uh, Devin. Devin. Um, so that was summer 2015. 
I'll start in summer 2015. It happened in fall of 2015, September. And so that was the point where I had almost finished the first version of Javelin that I built. We had a pre-launch page and we ended up getting over 50,000 signups. I'm not sure if we hit 60,000 or not. And it was just probably like a month away or two months away from, from opening it up to everybody. And I think we did open up to quite a few people, but was going to extend it to the rest of the list. And then I was giving a talk on my book at a conference in the UK, in London, a big corporate innovation conference. And then, yeah, like um, got someone from my high school just sent me a message on Facebook and told me that my friend Devin passed away. And um, yeah, it was just, it was just uh worst moment of my entire life. And at that point I just dropped everything. Like for the most part, I mean, at that point I was like, nothing else matters. It was just me and my co-founder working on the, the startup at that point. You know, we'd put a lot of work into getting ready for that launch, but you know, when that happened, it's like nothing else really matters. I went home, I went to the funeral. Uh, I was in living in San Francisco and I uh, moved to Thailand. Me and my co-founder just moved to Thailand for a few months just because, yeah, like nothing else mattered. You know, like, what do we want to do? My co-founder was super supportive and I'm super grateful to her for all the support in that time. And I actually started taking uh, antidepressants in Thailand because they're over the counter. And I felt like that was, I mean, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I don't recommend anybody to take antidepressants, you know, talk to a doctor. I just wanted to try to see because I was really, really like in despair and, and, and miserable and, and kind of hopeless in many ways. And I had built up a lot of scars from running out of money and from like the disappointment of letting everybody down. And a lot of people that had supported me kind of on my way up and when things were like improving and things were going really well, I felt like I'd kind of turned their back on me or didn't really care anymore when I really needed support from people. So I started taking some antidepressants and just kind of relaxing in Thailand. I was also got involved in esports on the side, just as like a way to kind of like have a, an escape from work, even though it was kind of like another form of work because I was a the lead analyst for like a world championship esports franchise. I also got to like go see the team play in Korea. I think um, it was like just one morning where, where through like all this process, I started to be able to understand my thinking and like reframe a lot of the previous negative thoughts I had or fears that I had over this time period. And I think that was really liberating for me. I don't think I, like, I felt like at that time, like I had fully recovered, but I definitely hadn't in many ways, but I had definitely a lot of breakthroughs beginning of, this is December when I was in Thailand. And then in January, I was able to reconnect with our lead investor, Mark Suster in SF in January when we were running out of money, like, and being a first time entrepreneur, being in my twenties, I didn't do a great job of communicating what was going on to any of our investors. That's something that was a big regret of mine at that time. I think now like I've learned a lot from that and have more maturity. But, you know, I felt a lot of guilt. I felt a lot of guilt about running out of money and and having to lay everybody off and just not achieving what we set out to achieve. 
And, you know, kudos to, to Mark. He was really, really great to me. I mean, you know, he didn't make a big deal out of it at all. Like I was, I felt like I had to like reach out to him to like confess, like, I'm so sorry. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't do a good job. I wasn't a good entrepreneur. I wasn't a good CEO, but he treated me really well. Um, he was a really great investor to us the whole time anyway. I mean, when we were running a money, he gave us a, he bridged the company. He was part of the bridge. And even after that, when I met up with him, after all this experience, he was just like super encouraging to me. He's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you know what? Our investment was a seed investment. It's a very small investment compared to the size of our fund. I still believe in you. You know, you have a lot to learn. You have a lot you can improve on and, you know, just go out there and I support you. And like, that was like another moment that I couldn't believe. Like, yeah, since then I actually ended up moving to China at the midway through that year because of pursuing some consulting opportunities. I was kind of in this middle ground where I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But then when I moved to China, um, we ended up getting like a six-figure licensing deal with Microsoft. So yeah. Every time you start talking, I keep finding new threads that I want to spend time exploring with you. I feel like we could talk for days. I'm curious to zoom in on a couple of parts of what you shared. One is you said a couple of times when you were talking about the loss of Devin that nothing else mattered. And I'm curious if you could share more about what did matter, what became clear and what were you protecting? And if you were dropping most things, what were you, what were you not dropping and paying attention to during that time? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, I would say that for me, it was just like hitting rock bottom, you know, I was in many, in many ways I was already at rock bottom. Right. But I think at that point it's like, I was at rock bottom, but I was like, you know, still pushing myself up, up the ground, reaching, trying to get up. And then, <laughs> and then at that point, it's like getting knocked out cold where you can't even crawl anymore. I had zero motivation to continue. Mm. And I just need to reflect and understand what the hell was going on in my life. You know, this is, this was my, my best friend from high school. We were on the wrestling team together. We used to drive to school in the morning every single day together we go to the gym every day after school together. Um, when I went to university, he didn't, he didn't go to college. So he just started working after school. I originally went to state school and then I transferred to NYU business school. And when I, when I transferred, I remember I came home and we were just hanging out. He's the type of friend where, you know, I went to school out of town and he was still in the town that we lived in. And just send him a text message like, Hey man, I'm back. And he's like, all right, I'll be over in like an hour, <laughs> you know? And when I told him like, Hey, I'm going to move to, I'm, I'm transferring to NYU. And he's like, Oh, like, where are you going to live? I'm like, Oh, I'm not sure. He's like, do you have a roommate? No. And he's like, Oh, he's like, I'll be your roommate. <laughs> wow. So he moved to New York city with me. He's my first roommate in New York city. And you know, I hadn't been in touch with him that much in the past few years. And, you know, I think he had been going through a lot of his own difficulties as well. And I don't feel like I was there for him in those years. And I, I really deeply regret that, you know, because when you're running a startup, I mean, you just don't have time for any work-life balance. I definitely didn't. In many ways, I, I prided myself on not having any work-life balance. <laughs> and yeah, it's just like, it's like in my back of my mind, I always knew that even though we didn't talk that much 
in those years leading up to that, that wasn't like really a big deal, actually. It was the type of friend you could pick up wherever you left off, whenever, and go your different paths and come back together. And there's a friend that I imagined that, you know, someday we'd both be hanging out when we're like grandparents, you know, like when we're both grandfathers, like hanging out at a barbecue or something like that. Like I had that image in the back of my mind. Um, and so just having that, that taken from me is a lot. Yeah. Dan is the guy's name of uh, the Devin in my life. And as you're talking about him, I'm thinking about what a loss of Dan would have been like for me. Yeah. During the times that I was running my last business, I went through several significant losses. And um, I think startups are can be so consuming that trying to navigate a loss like that while also trying to navigate a startup is just an impossibly difficult thing. I'm curious if you could bring us back to that time and, and the ensuing months, what you see looking backward that may be of service to people that are listening that are facing similar months currently. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the biggest thing that changed for me is just to take my time and try to live my life more. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you have to be irrationally optimistic in many ways. And you have to believe that you're going to succeed. And I think it's a can be a harmful belief to think that you can put off things you want to do now because you're going to be successful really soon and you're going to have more resources and you're going to have more time to do those things. Just taking my time now is the biggest, the biggest thing that I've changed. I never want to be in a position where I have to pull a rabbit out of a hat in the future. Like for me, I always did that. We went into the Techstars program in New York. It was super competitive. You know, less than 1% people accepted. We were the 13th of the 13th company who got an offer, you know? And then, you know, we were one of the first people to get a major lead investor in our round before the end of the program. So I've always done things like that throughout my life where I started as the underdog and ended up pulling a rabbit out of a hat essentially. But going forward in my life, I don't ever want to have to do that again because it's not a one size fits all, like even just running out of money for the company. If I could have taken my time more, been more patient and avoided that, I would be in a much better position now. And this is, this is a lot of like what Lean Startup tries to teach, but I think it's really hard to take it all in and really subscribe to it and do it in everything that you do. I want to create the strongest foundation possible for my business where the foundation builds on itself and is indestructible. And there's not going to be a chance that we're going to run out of money or it's all going to be for, for naught. So I would rather have a 99% chance of being successful in, let's say, $10 million than a 1% chance of being $10 billion or nothing. So I look at people like Elon Musk or Warren Buffett where Elon Musk, his first company, he sold for you know, not a billion dollars. His first company, I forget the exact amount off the top of my head, but he maybe he made $20 million on his first company. And then he started PayPal or he you know, sold X.com to PayPal and, and was part of PayPal team and made $100 million from that. And then after that, he started Tesla and SpaceX. And so trying to set more realistic goals. And Warren Buffett, he says, one of my favorite quotes from Warren Buffett is that when he looks for investments, he doesn't look for five foot fences to jump over. He looks for one foot fences he can step over. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think I've just really tried to deeply ingrain 
that in my mind and just taking it more slowly, but also focusing on doing the right things to set yourself up for success and working, working smart instead of working hard is something that I yeah. always talk about today that I didn't even understand probably like 10 years ago when I was, you know, 22 or 23. Yeah. You mentioned what Lean Startup teaches. And in just a moment, I want to, if I may, invite your expert brain into a, a challenge that came up in a coaching session this week with one of my clients. But before we do that, just to close out talking through some of these more challenging years that you've been through, I'm wondering about burnout. And I'm wondering if you faced times where you felt like you didn't want to do it anymore and what kept you going, what the through lines were, what you've learned about that along the way, anything there that you'd be up for sharing? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've burnt out multiple times, but I think I've been able to redirect my energy. You know, like the pace of work definitely slowed down, but I didn't necessarily completely crash until I lost my friend. It was always about like having an idea of what I wanted to do next. I think unfortunately, a lot of my life before my friend passed away was maybe based around guilt. You know, and I haven't, to be honest, like I haven't totally reflected. I've reflected a lot, but I, I'm still not to this day even clear on everything, you know, because I didn't want to feel that guilt. Mm. I didn't want to close down the company. Probably would have been better for me professionally to not keep going. Probably would have been better for me professionally to close it down as soon as the writing was on the wall and have a clean break. And rather than slogging it and, you know, bootstrapping, that probably just would have been better. And I think now I have the maturity to, to do that. Like I had let go of every single person on our team. It was me and my co-founder <laughs> and we're still going <laughs> and we're still doing anything we can to stay alive. And it was just the guilt of like being like, I failed and, and clean it up, you know, the uncertainty around that. So we were talking about burnout and you said that guilt was a big driver up until that point. And I'm assuming the realization at some point was that that's not going to be enough to keep driving you going forward. Could you talk more about that change and what drives you now? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's that it wouldn't be enough to keep you going forward. I'm not sure about that. I think it's just it doesn't lead you to make the best decisions. Like when I met up with our lead investor, Mark, it wasn't a big deal to him. And, and in reality, like it shouldn't have been a big deal to him because it wasn't like he invested you know, half his fund. You look at like WeWork and SoftBank. We're not talking about that level of investment, you know, or even that percentage of a fund. So just this feeling that people are going to be disappointed in me kept driving me to keep going, even though like, you know, it takes a lot of people to build a successful startup. It takes a lot of resources to build a successful startup. It takes a team. It's really hard to bootstrap. It's really hard to, with a small team, launch something and get traction and launch the right thing. I just look back and I'm like, how did I think that as two people, we could accomplish this big task? And it was a lot of just driven by guilt, like I had no option, but I did have options. And so I think the burnout and the guilt probably led me to care too much about that. Yeah, a bunch of what you're sharing is resonating with me, both in my own journey and with people that I speak with on the coaching side. But in my own journey, I think what I felt was that investors were drawn to working with me because when they they could see that I was someone that was going to take the responsibility very seriously. And I think that was a benefit to a point. But what I'm feeling is common ground with what you're sharing is that I took the responsibility very personally. And I was going to do whatever it took, no matter how much 
pain it caused me to protect their capital. And the counterintuitive thing that it took me a long time to realize, and that frankly, as a coach or advisor, it's way easier to see and realize in others than it is in, in myself, is that part of the job of being a CEO is to create shared accountability across a wide group of people, and also to let go in some way or to free yourself of this intense kind of type A perfectionist, I'm going to do it all on my own shoulders way of being so that you can come with calm and clarity and creativity. And man, is that hard to make that transition, particularly, I think, in the venture backed experience where you are feeling accountable to so many people. Yeah, 100%. And just to build on what you're saying, I think it's also for me, it makes you not adequately size the obstacle that you're facing. You know, it's kind of like you look at an obstacle and you're like, oh, I have to do it. And you're not actually even thinking, is it possible? <laughs> and many, like if someone was looking at it from the outside, it, maybe it's not possible. Like what I was trying to do was probably not possible. Yeah. And so it was like a suicide mission rather than like a glorious mission. You know what I'm saying? Point of being a CEO is to find a, a smart way to achieve what you need to achieve. And so if you have that mindset of like, you have to do it, then you're not even looking at the alternatives of what might be a smarter way to do it. Or, you know, there's always a potential pivot and there's always unknown unknowns. There's always something that you're not thinking of. But if you just set your mind to do something and you have this like, I have to do a mindset, then you're not really considering all the options, I feel like. And that's, I think, the mistake I made. Yeah, I, I love the story you shared about Mark, too, and the the freedom it sounds like it brought you to hear the way that he was thinking about your challenges. And just it, it's reminding me of conversations that I had several years in with my lead investor, Maha at Canaan. And I was just, man, I carried it on my shoulders that we were either going to return her fund and sell for whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars, or I was failing. And it took me several years. I mean, she had to beat it into my head um, to help me to really begin to internalize that she invests in a portfolio and she invested people. And I don't want to put words in her mouth or misquote her, but just what she helped me understand about great venture capitalists is that they invest in a portfolio, they invest in people they trust, they know that that's about all that they can control, and that the people they're investing in can control living by their values, can control their work ethic, but not a lot else, right? Like there's right. so much chance here, there's so much luck. And I don't think I ever fully got there. But with her help, I began to at least to release some of the pressure on myself and to begin to, to see the work that was that we were doing more for what it was, which is we're going to bring right people together around a shared mission in this market. We're going to live by our values. We're going to do our best to work hard and solve our way around problems. And we're going to see where things land. Yeah. And I think for me, and this sounds like it may be shared for us, if I could go back and whisper one thing in the ear of Matt Munson and year one of running a venture back startup, it would be something around there of understand what the, what the real work is here. Understand that eight or nine out of 10 venture back startups don't even fully return capital. Like that's what you're signing up for. I love that we're talking about this because almost every venture back CEO that I talk with is carrying the same burden. And it's really hard to invite oneself into perspective here, particularly your first time around, I think. Yeah. And I think the contradiction is that by setting like unrealistic expectations for yourself, you actually can end up achieving a lot less 
than if you set realistic, achievable expectations and, and work smarter rather than pushing yourself to work too hard and trying to overcome some insurmountable obstacle. A lot of people, I think, might mistake it for, for settling, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think being realistic and actually seeing what you need to do for what it is is going to lead you to be much more successful than trying to psych yourself up and pave an insurmountable path. That totally lands for me. Today's episode is brought to you by Pluto Pillows. In all of life's little ups and downs, sleep is perhaps your most important ally. Pluto provides a personalized pillow directly to your door. The only irony here for me is that I loved my Pluto pillow until my wife stole it, and now she loves it. Personalized for me, but no longer mine. Well, still a win for the family, I suppose. Check out PlutoPillow.com. All orders receive free shipping and a 100-night guarantee. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sanity Labs. Sanity Labs provides founder and executive coaching designed by founders for founders. If you have considered hiring a CEO coach but had a hard time finding one who really knew what it felt like to be in the founder or CEO seat, be sure to check out Sanity Labs. Sanity bridges leadership development with actual tactics for company building to ensure you are not alone in the hardest parts of your role. Visit sanitylabs.co for more details. Reminder before we return to the episode, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode or any feedback at all, please email us at questions at the sanitypod.com. Now back to our episode. I want to turn our attention to a challenge that came up in a coaching session this week because I thought of you, we were talking about Lean Startup and I feel like you'll have some interesting thoughts to share and maybe even reflections on the way that you're approaching your current company and product now, given all that you've learned in the last seven years. Yeah. The, the situation won't be new to you, but I am coaching a company who is kind of late seed, early series A stage. They've got a product in market doing a million or two in revenue, having trouble growing it. They have a vision for bringing something related, but totally new to market right? And they've got a, a smallish team. And the question that the founder was sitting with, he had arrived at a decision that the new product was where they wanted to go. They didn't have the validation yet. But from a vision perspective, they felt that the, the old product had stalled enough that they needed to look for something new. And they had a lot of energy and interest around the new idea. So I know given all the work you've done with companies going through decisions like this, this will be familiar to you. The question that he was sitting with was, what do I do with the old product and the team? And how do I orient efforts around seeking product market fit for this new product that we'd like to bring to market? And I'm curious what comes up for you there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a nuanced question. I mean, I would look at what the overlap is first. I mean, if there's not a lot of overlap, you know, it might make sense to see if you can sell that former product to somebody as an asset transaction or sell the, the entity in some way to start fresh. Otherwise, if it's like targeting the exact same market, if your team has some IP that you need, that would be a deal breaker in that situation. Because I mean, it can be really tough to manage two things at the same time. You know, a lot of products, even though they're making millions of dollars in revenue, may have core issues like maintaining a specific feature that keeps breaking or you know customer a certain volume of customer support requests that require investment 
in a team. So I think it, it depends on what how big the the workload is there. And how about the second piece? When you've advised or coached teams through orienting a team around seeking product market fit, and I know you did a lot of this with Lean Startup Machine, but even you know post the weekend when teams go back to the office and they say, all right, there's enough validation here, we want to pursue this, but there's a lot of space between where we are and actual product market fit. Could you talk about how to orient a team of five or 10 around something like that? Yeah, what, why don't I talk to like what I've done in the past? Great. So I think the gap can vary quite significantly between what I call solution product fit and like product market fit. A lot of people in the startup world have previously defined like customer problem fit, problem solution fit. But I don't think anyone's ever really touched on like solution product fit. And so for a lot of products, it's not as big of an issue. But for Javelin, we ran into this a lot where we launched five different products. We had a solution that was our consulting and our coaching and, and what people were doing manually. And that was a solution that worked really well. But then productizing that solution into a process workflow tool was very, very challenging. And so we would measure product market fit based on the Sean Ellis, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer this no longer use this product question, you know, the must have score. Right. That's been really a guiding metric for me, even since Lean Startup Machine. In the early days of Lean Startup Machine, we used that question for people exiting the workshop, how disappointed would you be if you could have not taken this training program? But we had 70% of people say they would have been very disappointed. And so that was the metric I used in 2011 when I decided to work on Lean Startup Machine full-time starting 2012 and caused me to realize that I was you know, kind of not putting my best effort into something that could be really big. But then the problem we ran into later was unit economics because the cost of producing this event and the time of producing this event far outweighed the actual revenue potential of these events. What I believed is that, oh, we could streamline it through the tech. And to some extent, the cost of doing that was not important to me because I valued, I was so passionate about it and I valued it so much. So even you can have product market fit, but unit economics don't make sense. My approach over the years has always been to measure that that must-have score. I mean, of the five products that we launched, two of them, it was like there was no need to even ask that question, how disappointed would be, because people weren't using it, you know? So you need to have a product that people are actually continuously using for a few months probably. But then with Quick MVP, we also measured how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use Quick MVP, and it was like 25%. And so and then there's a long list of, of reasons that people said that people gave that answer. And you always need to look into the answers. The most important part of that question is why people said what they said. And for most people, they would launch a landing page. It was a landing page builder with Google AdWords. They would launch a landing page, and they launch Google AdWords. They get zero signups, which is very predictable, right? Because... None of these ideas survive first contact with customers. And if you if you haven't gone through the whole process of it, customer interviews and everything like that, then you're not going to build the right landing page. So I, re- I recognize that, that we wouldn't be able to get at the extra 15% that we needed to get to 40% on that metric. Because the reason people's landing pages weren't getting traction is not because they targeted the wrong AdWords. It's because they didn't know what their customers wanted and they hadn't done customer interviews. So that's when we decided to develop the next product, which I was working on until my friend passed away, which was an all-in-one solution with customer interviews and landing pages and the product market fit survey, which is the question I just mentioned. So 
when I launched that product in 2018, I again was asking people, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this product? And actually, we scored around the same as Quick MVP. It was around 25%, maybe even a little bit less. But all of the reasons were things that we could fix, actually, this time. All of the reasons that they weren't satisfied with it were things that we could fix. However, the actual effort that would have had to go in to fix that was way beyond what we could accomplish with our small team. And so from that point, that's when I started to explore other opportunities and we came to Rocketship. And so with Rocketship, it originally started as an idea for accelerator programs. And we were actually doing this because we were trying to find out ways we could sell Javelin to accelerators because we thought, okay, if we could sell to accelerators, we would actually have what I would call not necessarily an early adopter, but like a model early adopter. I think you can have a lot of early adopters for your startup, but they're not all like the ideal early adopter. Like what you really need in those early days is like a model early adopter who who you know their feedback is gold. You can contact them very frequently. You can iterate on their feedback. And the whole point of going from that early validation to building a product and then iterating on that product to get to product market fit because the first version of the product is never going is almost never going to product market fit, right? You need to iterate on it from the product to product market fit. And so assuming that you set that baseline using the very disappointed score and then all the reasons that people aren't satisfied can be solved and you have the resources to work on it, then you can get to product market fit. And so we wanted to tighten that feedback loop as much as possible. And that's why we're trying to pivot and sell Javelin to accelerators because we thought if we can get like a model accelerator on board, that would work really well. And so our first approach was let's start our own accelerator and let's use it for our own accelerator, see how it does. And then we can create a case study and sell it into somebody. And from that experience, we realized that actually the problems that accelerator is facing, the biggest problems are much more basic really than, than what Javelin is offering. And probably Javelin is probably too opinionated for some of these accelerators because Javelin is very opinionated. It's designed to be opinionated so that the consumers don't have to think about it. They're just given the right way to do it. But then accelerators consider themselves the experts and they want to do it their way. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board and we came up with the concept of rocket ship, which was going to be like an air table type thing for accelerators to build tools that, th- that can take their startups through coaching processes like Lean Startup being one of them, Experiment Board or Javelin Model being one of them. We went to accelerators and we spoke to 10 of them. For them, it was like mildly interesting. And when I say mildly interesting, you know, whenever you do interviews, people are always more excited when they talk to you than they are really about your product. If someone says, oh, uh, your product is so interesting, that really means it's mildly interesting or it's not interesting at all. (laughs) So that was kind of the reaction we were getting from people. And then we just leaned in and listened to what they were, what the problems they were facing. The problems they were facing were really more basic around even just like getting people to show up to events on time and tracking attendance and tracking the basic things of what people are doing, like are like even just setting goals for startups to me, like setting goals in terms of the hierarchy of needs, setting goals is a basic need compared to running an expert experimentation product process. 
So we decided to just abandon, you know, what we've been working on for so long and just focus on what the core needs were here at a a more basic level. After those initial 10 interviews, we pivoted into going from like Airtable for customized tools to just basic like event schedule, tracking goals, tracking KPIs, and also mentor matching with the network for those accelerators. And as soon as we made that shift, we did another 30 interviews. And across those 30 interviews, we covered a cookie cutter kind of accelerator program that you could imagine, but also late stage accelerator programs, pre-accelerator programs, which take an approach of like having 100 startups go at the same time, kind of like a massive open online course kind of model. And we identified the main segment, which is the really the cookie cutter accelerators gravitated most towards this. And we would just ask people, you know, very bluntly, like, hey, please let us know if this is not a must-have for you. We only want to work on something that's a must-have. So we go, like, for each piece of functionality, is this functionality a must-have or a nice-to-have? And is this functionality a must-have or nice-to-have? And I think part of the reason why that worked in this approach is because we're targeting to a fairly sophisticated group of customers who they understand, in many ways, product development itself. So maybe that approach wouldn't work for a different set of customers, but we oriented our whole customer development process towards what we knew their expectations were going to be and questions that we knew they were mature enough to answer correctly. And then we had 70% of the people in the segment that we're focusing on say that like these two parts of functionality would be a must-have. And so from there, we started signing up on letters of intent. So the letter of intent is like a non-binding contract that says they would be willing to pay X amount for the software when it's ready. And in fact, we were giving them a free pilot period to try the software. For this customer to pilot a software for your entire accelerator and all your startups is a big risk and a big investment. So I still I even consider them piloting it for free as long as they actually use it to be a form of validation. But then we got even more validation by saying that, that after that period, assuming it meets their needs, they would be willing to pay per year. And that's like a pretty low price, I think. But actually, we asked like for $10,000 first, and people like, oh, it's too expensive. I was like, great, how about $5,000? Like the pricing is is not something you optimize in this stage because the best way to optimize pricing is to figure out how valuable it was after they have experience using it and to figure out, you know, the pricing after they have experience with it. If you try to get the pricing in the beginning, it's probably over optimizing too early. And so that's where we are now. We basically identified seven customers that, we are, that we've signed on letters of intent. We only have one right now that we're still waiting for that signature on it. We have seven that are confirmed to pilot it this fall. And you know we've done in-depth interviews with them and made sure that this is a must-have for them and something they're going to be using every day. And they're willing to pay for it. And they're willing to take a risk by piloting it with all of their startups. And they are also the model early adopter for us. So there's someone that we can communicate with frequently and that their feedback is what I would consider gold in the sense that I don't have to question their feedback. They they know the frame of mind for what they the goal they need to achieve is and how they need to achieve it. And we can take that feedback and use in the product versus in Javelin, a lot of the challenge that we faced is that we have a lot of early adopters who were looking to us to tell them what the right thing was to do. Hmm. Amazing. There's a bunch of nuggets there that I'm finding very helpful. This idea of the ideal early adopter, super interesting, that not all early adopters are created equal. This idea of letting go of pricing and just looking for validation. And I guess also implied in that is 
let's just get some customers on because the feedback that we get on the value they're receiving from the product is going to be incredibly valuable in helping us understand where to go from here. And the other piece that you mentioned was if we have an early version of a product out and we get feedback on where the product needs to go to drive value, but we can't afford to bring the product to that point, that in itself is a form of invalidation, which I have not thought of before. Super right. interesting. So let me share back what I'm hearing at kind of a cliff notes level, because some of our listeners may be new to Lean. You and I go way back with Lean. We didn't even talk about this, but we met at one of your Lean Startup Machine events. Well, first of all, that almost killed my company because we realized at that event that none of our prospective customers cared about what we were building. Right. As we learned the methodology, you were gracious enough to invite us back over time to tell that story and found it super helpful to be able to interact with teams that were going through this process. But when we went through this, we had spent nine months building a product, we took it to market, we got some press, and we were surprised when no one used it. And that's kind of the old way of building software. And what I learned from Reese's book and from working with you and the team at LSM was this new way of thinking where we're going to actually take what Lean calls a canvas, we're going to model out the, the major elements of how we think about this business. Things like the problem, the solution, the monetization strategy, the how we're going to acquire customers, and so forth. And then we're going to look at the major hypotheses that underlie each element of that model and look at the riskiness of each of those hypotheses. And then rather than going and just being heads down and building this for nine months, we're actually going to try to get data about those hypotheses before we invest in building. Yep. You've, I think, highlighted a bunch of advanced elements of this where we're actually looking at the cost as a part of this. We're looking at margins in the business. We're thinking about the types of customers that we're going to need early on in order to drive learning. And I guess one thing I missed is just the orientation from Lean of a startup being a learning machine first and foremost. Right. And so what I'm hearing in the way that you're describing your approach now is we're kind of creating a supercharged learning machine yeah. where... We're looking at ways of learning that keep costs low, iterations fast, when we're living very close to the customer. What did I miss in my cliff notes? No, I think you you got it pretty good. I mean, there's a couple things that I'm taking into consideration now that I don't know that are part of the traditional lean playbook, but um, a couple of things that have been interesting and in, in where we've been evolving is that I'm also looking much more carefully at like market size as well, because I think in the in the innovation space itself, or like startup space, it's hard to justify a large market size because Javelin is kind of like a first of its kind product in a way. And we were always comparing it to like, uh, let's say, agile project management software like Atlassian and Jira or user experience software like usertesting.com or Envision. But there's not a huge kind of like overlap in some of these. I mean, they're in the same general market, but they're very different products versus like with what we're doing now, we see ways that we can expand the use case to many other niche segments. So if I was looking at like the whole innovation space, it's like in the tens of billions of dollars a year. But if I'm looking at online learning as a whole, the market size is an order of magnitude bigger. Like the online learning space, which is mainly contained with MOOCs and learning management systems, is, a, is expected to be a $350 billion market in five years. And so we're actually like in a much bigger market. If, if we were only targeting accelerators or startups, it probably wouldn't be a venture scale business or easily a venture scale business. 
But if you go into a much bigger market and you have the right angle on, it's all about having the right angle in my mind. And maybe we don't have the right angle, but I think we have a good chance of having a good angle on it, which is the type of learning that is done in an entrepreneurship class or an accelerator is a very hands-on guided approach to learning. And there's a subset of topics and subjects which need that kind of learning, but the current platforms such as massive open online courses don't offer like a coaching, a way for coaching and a way for a teacher to really manage hands-on learning with students. So we've actually, this is a realization I've only had recently because I started on this just targeting what we know, which is accelerators. And then I've been seeing overlap with other niches like coaching programs, but also hands-on learning programs like that could use career placement, like a career mentoring program. Like a MOOC would not be a good format for a career mentoring program of any kind. Interesting. So adding market sizing to the traditional lean approach has been helpful. I'm guessing that's particularly looking at a model where we're raising outside capital. Is that right? Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to raise outside capital if you have, I would say the number one thing that people look at in raising venture on the seed level is, of course, your team, but then also the market size. And if you can't justify a big market size, then like for Jab, when we raise money, I've actually put my Techstars pitch online. Everybody can watch it. But the market size is bottoms up because we didn't have really a top-down market size for that Mm -hmm. industry. And the market size number is like, I don't have off the top of my head, but it's like two billion a year is like the mar- achievable market. And then, but if you take the online learning market, which is three hundred fifty billion, and then you say, "Hey, we're going to carve up a third of this, which are topics that need hands-on learning," and then we're going to take a twenty-five percent commission on sales, you end up with a much like a a number that's ten times bigger. Got it. And just for for listeners that maybe not as familiar with the importance of why market size matters in the venture model, because I, I know when I was starting out raising venture. I thought this was weird, man. I thought, why, you know, okay, I'm playing in something that is a $10 billion bar- market. So if I get 20% of that market, we got a $2 billion company and it just doesn't quite work that way. And just high level on this part of that goes to the venture model only works if a certain portion of the companies end up with quasi monopolies in massive markets. And most of the free cash flow that's coming from these investments comes in the five to 10 year mark or beyond. So like LinkedIn as a model where you build a monopoly somewhere that you can take advantage of for five, 10, 15, 20 years. And if the market's not big enough, it just doesn't last and create the returns that are necessary for venture. Um, Kind of mind boggling if you're just getting into it, but an important point, I think. I know we're up against time here. Anything that we missed that the Trevor of seven or eight years ago would have wanted to hear if he was listening? Yeah, I mean, wow, we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, even though I said like market sizing is important, I think it's one factor to help you. The The core thing here is for me, it's like the decision when to do venture scale business versus when not to. And I, like I said, I want to be in a position where all the cards are stacked in my favor and not against me, which is like what the situations I've gotten to in the past in some unfortunate ways. And so... I haven't even said or decided if we're going to take venture funding yet for this business because I would be completely content to build a multi-million dollar company that's successful and can employ people and can improve customers' lives. If there's a way to expand the use cases to attack a much bigger market, then that'd be great. And that would make me make things easier. But if it's not easy, then I'm not going to pursue it because 
I only want to be in a situation where the cards are stacked in my favor. And I want to do everything I can from day one to set that up so that execution of what I'm going to do is going to be, is going to be as easy as possible. And there's no judgment in my mind towards myself in terms of doing that. Like for me, it's just appreciating the journey and not being attached to the ego of, I have to have this result or I have to, you know, impress these people or meet their expectations. For me, it's, I I think I've completely shifted over the years from being like, you know, trying to be ambitious and prove myself and in a way talking a big game to psych myself up and to doing the complete opposite to only pursuing something that I think can be achieved, but, but figuring out a way to achieve something great. And so I think that's the big difference that I've learned over the years of just focusing on working smart rather than working hard. If you set things up so the cards are stacked in your favor, you can put in a lot less effort and have great outcome and results than if you try to achieve something that's insurmountable and all the cards are stacked against you, you're most likely not going to achieve anything. I feel like we're exploring similar threads here in life. I'm thinking of my own story of selling a venture back business a year ago that was a darling of venture at fundraising and front page of TechCrunch and blah, blah, blah. And now I run a boutique coaching service out of my garage. And man, am I happier and more at ease. <laughs> and, and man, does it feel easier to to have an impact and make a living? And I think the invitation that I've been trying to give myself, and it is not always easy, is to let the questions of what's big enough and how do I know this matters and what are other people going to think to push those to the wayside for the moment and to start with what am I well suited for? What does the world need that I can do better than most? What's really in my heart that I want to offer the world and to other people and what feels of deep meaning and purpose to me? And as you talk about stacking the deck, I mean, man, if all of us can find work that answers those questions. And then, you know, nothing wrong with with ambition and nothing wrong with going big and nothing wrong with, I mean, but to put those questions secondary and, and to pursue firm foundations, what a great place to start. And I appreciate you modeling that for me as a friend. Thank you, man. Yeah, man, my pleasure. Been great having a conversation with you, Matt. You too, Trevor. Thanks for making time, man. I really appreciate it and look forward to hearing how things unfold in the next year. Definitely, man. That's today's episode. Please follow and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your positive reviews mean the world to us. Lastly, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode, please email us at questions at the sanitypod.com. Thank you so much for listening.